So good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome uh, to the LSC. I am Sandra Jovcelovic from the Department of Social Psychology here at the school, and it is a real pleasure for me to be able to chair this event on narrative memory and the mind. We are thrilled to have this event running in the LSC Literary Festival now in its fifth year and firmly established in the calendar of the school. This year at the festival, we explored the theme of branching out, not only because a fifth anniversary is traditionally marked by wood, uh, but also because it is a homage to the 300th anniversary uh, of Denise Diderot, who constructed a figurative uh, system of branches of human knowledge. The festival will be running until Saturday, and I'm told there are still some uh, tickets available online to other events. One of the branches of knowledge that we are going to be exploring in the next few days is narrative. In our event this evening, we'll seek out in particular its connections to mind and memory. For psychologists of a social and cultural denomination, narrative has offered a key entry point to the dynamics of mind and an almost direct route to this study of memory. Uh, from our very early narratives, from the creep to the collective histories uh, and memories that make our social and cultural lives, the capacity to tell not only serves the human meat of understanding and working through, but also connects our personal and sociocultural worlds. The power of narrative is to enable the mind to understand as it gives a structure to our thinking, to our memories, and to our imaginations. With me to discuss these issues uh, this evening are three wonderful and eminent authors, each with a very unique perspective on the subject, which corresponds to another challenge of the festival this year, to unite the branches of knowledge. They will bring together psychology, history, and literature as they discuss the relations between these three domains. Lisa Apignanesi, OBE, hardly needs an introduction. She's a prize-winning writer, novelist, and cultural commentator whose beautiful and inspiring books take us from memoir to scholarship to fiction and back. She's a visiting professor at King's College, London and former president of English Pen, the Campaigning Writers Association. She's also chair of uh, London's Freud Museum, and her latest book, her latest books, in fact, are all about love, anatomy of an unruly emotion, and mad, bad, and sad, a history of women and the mind doctors. Anne Applebaum is uh, our colleague here this year. She is the <laughs> Philippe Homan Chair in History and International Affairs at LSE Ideas for 2012 and 2013. She's also the first woman to ever hold this position. Her many books include the Pulitzer uh, Prize-winning Gulag, A History, and more recently, Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, 1944-1956. 
where she explores the institution of communism in Central and Eastern European societies in the period after uh, the Second uh, World War. I think I should also like to mention from a Polish country kitchen uh, that explores the fall of communism and its uh, wide-ranging culinary and cultural effects through the lens of food. I think this is a very intriguing book. She's an acclaimed journalist and has written columns for numerous British newspapers throughout her career, including The Guardian uh, and The Sunday Telegraph. Charlie's Fernyhoe is a psychologist and writer of fiction and non-fiction. His previous book, The Baby in the Mirror, a mixture of psychology and a father's memoir of the formidable experience of seeing one's child developing mind from birth to the age of three, was critically acclaimed in the UK and has been translated into seven languages. Pieces of Light, The New Science of Memory, was published uh, in July 2012, and it is a scholarly, as scholarly as it is sensitive, a wonderful reminder that psychology needs not lose its connection with an aesthetic sensibility. Charles is a reader in psychology at Durham University and blogs regularly in the School of Life. He has also written for The Guardian, Financial Times, and The Sunday Telegraph. So the format of the event uh, is this. Each speaker will give a short talk, 10, 15 minutes, on the subject, after which they will be able to interact and respond to each other's <laughs> interventions. We will then open to the questions from the audience. We will start with Charles, as his last, latest book inspired the topic. Charles, Thank you very much for that introduction, Sandra. That's very brave, people would tell me when I would tell them that I'd written a book on memory. Um, and in fact, memory as a topic is a ridiculously ambitious one. For a psychologist, just about everything is about memory because everything our cognitive system does in some way involves processing information and retaining information over a period of time. And of course, that's one definition of what memory is. But it, it turns out to be a very slippery term. It means lots of different things. For a psychologist, memory means a particular mental function, something that our minds, stroke brains, um, are capable of. It involves a particular uh, set of actions, remembering, recalling, recollecting. But memories are also things. Memories are the end products of the action of memory. So we need to be careful about what we mean by the term. And I tried to focus in on a particular branch of memory studies, which is the field of autobiographical memory. What I mean by autobiographical memory are the kinds of memories we have about our own lives, our re recollections of the events that happen to us in our lives. So we distinguish it from other kinds of memory, such as semantic memory, which is memory for facts, short-term memory or working memory, which is the kind of um, short-term memory for information that lasts a matter of seconds, uh, implicit memory, which is memory for how to perform actions, uh, and so on. So autobiographical memory, our memory for the events of our own lives. One of the things that makes this a difficult topic is that it is so personal and subjective. I can't get at your memories by looking at you. I can only really experience them by 
being you by looking out at them, looking out at the world through your eyes and, and reliving the past as, as you do. So in my approach to writing about the topic, it was important that I tried to capture that sub- subjective um, dimension. It's also a difficult topic because we know memories are fallible. Plenty of people will accept that their memory plays tricks on them. But what I was interested in is getting at some of the new research on exactly how and why our memories are fallible. And it turns out that if you look at the sorts of errors that people make in remembering, the sorts of distortions and biases that creep into our remembering, you can learn a lot about how the system works. I like to think of memory as a system, a machine with many moving parts. And as my father always used to tell me, if you've got lots of moving parts, there are lots of things that can go wrong. And that's exactly what memory scientists realise and are able to make use of by looking at the many ways in which memory goes, goes wrong. They can learn all sorts of things about that process. So a couple of, um, a couple of ideas to, to get the conversation going. A recent psychological study exposed more than 5,000 people to some photographs of political events. This was run by the magazine Slate, and this was running on their um, website, slate.com. And more than 5,000 people took part in this experiment, where they saw some true photographs of political events and some photoshopped, doctored photographs. So people saw a couple of true photographs, then they saw a false photograph, and then they saw another true one. And they were asked, for each photograph, do you remember these events happening? An example of the true photograph was a picture of Colin Powell giving his testimony to the UN in 2003 about weapons of mass destruction. An example of a false event was a picture which had been photoshopped from another uh, photograph showing Barack Obama, Obama shaking hands with President Ahmadinejad of Iran, an event which has never happened. And yet, taking these false photographs altogether, roughly half the people who saw these photographs said they remembered the events happening. There's nothing particularly remarkable about these findings. They, they support decades of research conducted by people like Elizabeth Loftus, who's shown that it's remarkably easy to lead people to think they remember things that didn't actually happen. But here's another interesting fact. When you ask people about how memory works, they tend to get it very wrong. They will tend to, for example, if you say to people, memory works like a video camera, most people will say, yes, that's true. Memory is a faithful record of past events. It's like you're taking a picture of what happens to you and then playing it back at a later point in time. So there's this paradox. People tend to get memory very wrong. The scientists are telling us that memory is extraordinarily fallible in all sorts of ways. So I was interested in this topic. I wanted to know why we'll be getting memory so wrong. Why is it that this information hasn't got through to people? One thing that this view, the scientific view of memory argues against is the idea that memories are possessions. We do tend to be wedded to this idea that memories are things that we have. They're like mental DVDs that we pull down from the shelf and set playing when we want to record, when we want to recall something. 
If you think about the, the premise of the movie Total Recall, for example, the idea that in the old version it was Arnie who was going and getting his memories zapped and new memories implanted into his head, it's really based on an assumption that memories are things that can be put into your head and taken out of your head. You see the same sort of idea in Harry Potter, where they have the magical capacity to distill Dumbledore's memories and view them and then put them back in the potion or whatever it is. It's constantly pointing towards an idea that memories are like possessions, they're like things. But what the science is telling us is that memories are reconstructions of past events that are made in the moment, that serve the needs of the self, that effectively we remember the past in some ways the way we want to remember it and in ways that reflect who we are now and what our biases and beliefs and desires are. This makes perfect sense in terms of the neuroscience of memory, what we know about how memory works in the brain. As I said, memory is a system with many moving parts. There are lots of different bits of the brain that jump into action when you start recalling the past. If I asked you to recall your first day at school, for example, or your wedding day, you would see activity all over your brain, lots of different systems pulling together lots of different kinds of information and doing it in a different way each time, assembling things in new configurations all the time. So memory lets us down in lots of ways because memory has got lots of moving parts, lots of things that can go wrong. And perhaps we can touch on some of the specifics of these kinds of errors as, as the conversation unfolds. I think one, one interesting point to um, explore is the way in which we are constantly editing our memories as we tell and retell the stories of our lives. And a couple of interesting findings from the scientific literature back up this idea. If you ask a sample of ordinary people whether they remember any events, whether they have memories of events that they no longer believed happened, you find that more than 20% of people would endorse that view. So more than 20% of people have memories that they no longer think are true. For example, I have a friend who has a clear memory of standing at the top of the stairs in his house, stretching out his arms like wings and flying down the stairs, flying around the downstairs room, rooms of the house and flying back up the stairs. And when he learned I was writing about memory, he, he said, I'd really like to talk to you because I think I'm going mad. And he explained this, he described this to me, and I said, no, you're not going mad. You've simply got what the scientists call a non-believed memory. You've got a memory for something which you experience as a memory but you no longer think it happened. You've come to some, you know, for some reason you think it can't be true. That's an example of how we edit our memories all the time. We're still having an experience, but we're changing our view of of what they mean. So I'm going to just finish really by saying memories are complex reconstructions of past events. They're not literal records of past events, we put them together in the present moment according to who we are now and what we want now. And in a way, that makes them a kind of storytelling. They have a narrative form. When we tell a memory, we're telling a memory like we tell a story. We find that young children, for example, seem to become able to do autobiographical memory once they acquire the ability to tell stories. And 
They're the stories we tell ourselves as people, but they're also the stories I think we tell each other, tell ourselves as families, as couples, as f- groups of friends, but also as broader societies and cultures. Thank you, Charles. Thank you very much. Um, Lisa? Okay, well, I suspect I'm here because um, I haven't got a memory. <laughs> um, and I think I've been so interested in memory for so long precisely because I think I have a very bad one. Um, I'm, I'm rather reassured by the fact that many writers, particularly writers of fiction, will tell you that they have terrible memories. And I suspect that's because imagination and memory, as um, the scientists are now increasingly beginning to, to prove, um, are very much related to each other um, in our inner processes. Um, but... but um, because I have such a bad memory, I've actually made some notes because I was afraid I wouldn't remember anything that I might want to say. Uh, so you'll excuse me if I put my glasses on. Um, one of the things that I learned when I was doing research for um, Mad, Bad and Sad, um, my, my long history of the rise and rise of the mind doctors, the psychiatric, neurological and so on professions, was that in fact co-incidental uh, in other words, coming at the same time as the rise of these professions towards the end of the 19th century, was a huge emphasis on memory. And um, in fact, if you look at it in in one perspective, and it's not a bad way of looking at it, this was really the moment of the great birth of the neurosciences because the psychologists, um, the people who were alienists who eventually became both psychiatrists and psychologists and psychoanalysts, um, were all interested in this strange ability people have both to remember sometimes but also to forget and to forget profoundly. Uh, and so the sciences of memory really began to take off at that time. And, and the people who were implicated in this were people like William James, who already talks about primary and secondary memories. William James, the great American psychologist, really the father, if you like, of psychology. Now, don't forget, um, in the English-speaking languages, not in German, where there are prior ones, but, but um, don't forget that psychology came into being because it was an attempt to do... Um, philosophy of mind from the outside. (laughs) In other words, you were going to look at an experimental subject whose own discourse, whose own narrative is not as important as what it is that you can find out about this being um, who is your experimental subject. The alienists had a different problem. They were dealing with people who were obviously suffering from disturbances of memory. Um, In other words, people who would enter altered states um, some of you will have read the great psychologist Pierre Janet, who actually saw both men and women, but largely women, who would enter one state and be, have one set of names and one set of memories, and then suddenly go into some kind of trance and become somebody else. Um, what in the 90s became the strange movement called multiple personality disorder in America. Um, but they, they're not the only ones. I mean, a lot of the Swiss um, um, uh, alienists and psychiatrists were very, very interested in um, mediums because mediums too seem to have in one state no memory of their lives in another state. Um, so 
psychologists and the people who became psychiatrists, um, and indeed a lot of the popular press, <laughs> followed these people to see what it was that they were forgetting and what it was they were remembering. Um, and into this, this kind of um, melange of, of, of the, the neurosciences of the end of the 19th century um, came also the importance of hypnotism. Now, I know we all, particularly in the LSC, probably think hypnotism is a little bit loopy, <laughs> but, but at the time, in uh, probably the greatest hospital of its day and, and the greatest of the neurologists, a man called Charcot, uh, Jean-Martin Charcot, um, actually thought that it was a way of diagnosing um, hysteria. And hysteria was a serious condition, not just, you know, me acting a little histrionically here, but, but also meant a state of paralysis for which there were no um, findable physical symptoms and so on. And hypnotism, again, the state in which you could remember things that you couldn't remember when you were in another state, was something that needed to be studied. So... Then came Freud, who actually comes out of all of this and, and was also very interested in how memory proceeded because he, with his first patients, his first hysterics, or at least not his first patients because his first patients were children in the neurological hospital because he was, of course, a neurologist when he started his life and had studied with Charcot um, and was interested in people's nervous reactions and um, their nervous ailments and illnesses. And uh, with the people who came to be called hysterics and the people who formed the subject matter of his second book, the studies in hysteria with, with Joseph Breuer, he began to think that um, what was wrong with these patients, um, the, these women, was that they uh, suffered from their reminiscences. In other words, it was their memories that were driving them mad, but not the ones that they could actually easily access but the ones that, that were somehow written beneath this mystic writing pad. So there was this top layer of memories, and then you do that. And underneath, you see kind of um, the remains of other forms of writing on the soul. Anyhow, um, so Freud began to think about the way in which memory worked itself through the human um, nervous system and, and displayed itself in a whole series of symptoms, of which there were many. He then had other kinds of insights about memory as well, which we, we may come to later on. But what I really wanted to say out of all this was that um, the reason people become interested, I suspect, in this whole area of memory at the late, in the late 19th century. It's because you're actually moving from, from uh, a society which, which has been coordinated around I religious ideas to a society which is coordinated around more secular and scientific notions. And memory, in a sense, becomes the displaced repository of the soul. Um, uh, Ian Hacking, the philosopher of science, has, has a very interesting book about this. Um, where he actually explores memory and, and thinks of it in, in these terms. And I, and I suspect that's actually right. I mean, one of the reasons um, that memory is such a modern preoccupation, of course the Greeks too thought about how you can remember, but they were interested in how you could remember religion. I mean, for example, the Jewish religion is extremely interested in memory as a, a reenactment of an original set of, of events. Um, Christianity is also interested in a reenactment of, of, of a set of, of, of 
sacred events. Um, but that's not the same as the kind of memory that we're talking about. And, and in, with the birth of modern, you become interested in memory in a new way because it becomes the repository of identity without the need for religion and the repository, if you like, of this secular soul. So that, that's a kind of backdrop to... to <coughs> Um, what after having been interested in memory for a long time, I decided <laughs> were my interests. Now, I think I was interested in them actually for, for another set of reasons. And if I remember my first novel, which I don't really remember very clearly, but it did have a kind of psychoanalyst hero who was very loosely of the period of Jacques Lacan. <laughs> and um, the, the epigraph to that novel was memory is, the book was called Memory and Desire. And it, it simply based on, on something that, that um, an, an, an English um, analyst called Bayan, who's too difficult to understand but nonetheless is very interesting, uh, had said, which is that memory is the past tense of desire, which, which brings us full circle to this sense that memory is also um, something like imagination. It is linked to fantasy. And the memories we remember best are the ones we desire the most or where we were most desiring. (laughs) Um, And the ones we'll probably remember in the future are where, again, our emotions, to put it into contemporary neuroscientific language, have been implicated and all those little parts like a hippocampus and the amygdala and and all that, which um, I won't go into here. Okay, so um, have I talked enough? Should I talk a little bit more? (laughs) You can, if you wish. So, really, this is just to say that that I think um, um, what you understand from the entire psychoanalytic discourse is that memory is somehow informed by and shaped by and made more profound by um, emotion or desire. Um, And and it's also something that, that if... Um, in some way that, that, that there's a propensity to, to um, any kind of symptoms or the manifestation of symptoms, um, you may find that people repeat the things that they can't quite remember. So when I was writing, so to get to my writing as opposed to thinking, um, when I was writing my family memoir, Losing the Dead, I wrote it for a very strange reason. Well, not a strange reason. It's the reason most people write memoirs. It's, it's kind of a form of reparation towards their parents because they've been bad children. Um, <laughs> and mine is a family memoir, and my family lived through the Second World War in Poland as Jews, and they had a rather rough time of it, but they also had a very interesting time of it. And... Um, um, what am I going to say out of the honors? You forgot. I forgot. You forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgot. I was going to say something about this, but I think, oh, repetition, that's what it was. I realized that was I will now repeat myself and say that, that one of the things I discovered by actually focusing in on my own childhood and what had seemed peculiar about it not quite mad, but, you know, peculiar in the good Victorian sense, (laughs) was that um, here were my parents who, like all immigrants to a strange country, were actually living in a melange of languages um, and were somehow unconsciously recreating the very past that they wanted to escape. Um, And in that sense enacting of Freud in repetition. So um, the reason this was peculiar was not because they were reenacting it, but because we children didn't know what 
what they were reenacting, and we had no set of, of understandings about what they had been through. So, for example, I mean, I tell one of the stories that I unearthed as I try to remember my childhood. I may have imagined this, but I think it happened on several occasions, and because I even had a shred of memory for it, it probably has a grain of truth. <laughs> Anyhow, it made a really good story. <laughs> um, but one of the things I remembered was that... Um, I grew up in Canada, uh, crossing the border from Canada to America, um, which is one of the least patrolled borders in the world and, and not really terribly difficult if you've got a passport and you're not smuggling lots of drugs, which my, my very sedate by then parents were not. But every time we come to this border, and you know, we used to go to, to, the, to New York and, and up to the mountains in Vermont quite often from Montreal, my father would go into a terrible state. I mean, he would turn white, he'd start to perspire, he would get absolutely rigid, and the, we weren't allowed to say a word. And my mother would start humming and singing and you know, being very blithe and, and enacting that kind of ritual that we see in most families, that they separate out the emotion into two. And, and and they each take on a part of it. And by the time we'd get to the border, my father was in an absolutely terrible, terrible state and, and you know, would, would be incredibly rude to the border guards and, you know, put his passport out the window in the most awful way and then take it back. And then, you know, by the time we got through the border, we, we were kind of you know, all nervous wrecks. And, and, <laughs> and, and then my father would start to shout. Uh, he would get extremely angry at anything. And my mother would sing all the more. And as I re <laughs> try to recreate the scenes, I, I you know, wonder, why, what was all this about? I mean, it's not, were my parents crazy? It didn't seem particularly crazy, but, the, but they had this sort of, of peculiarity. And of course, you know, as I thought about it, and I was by this time an old lady, and, and I could think about being a parent and having children and all the rest of it. Um, and I, could, I, I, I realized that what was happening with my father was that he was re-enacting without quite realizing it somewhere in himself, um, you know, in the bones of his old habits, deeply buried habits, um, other kinds of moments when people would ask you for documents, and his were never the right kind of documents. And so he would be in a terrible state, and his way of um, living that was to grow rigid and extremely nervous internally and pretend to be tough and cold, whereas my mother would, would go all fluffy and frilly, and, and she wasn't usually a fluffy woman, but, but in this instance she was, and, and she would flirt with, with the border guards, which is how she had managed to get through these, these document moments. So what I'm saying really is that memory is also something that travels down the generations without necessarily being named as remembering or as memory. It's actually a state of the body, a state of habit, which is displaced into other situations. And I think the reason immigrants quite often, particularly immigrants from, from difficult places, act to us so weirdly is that they're reenacting these situations that we don't understand without quite knowing what they're doing. Okay, I'll stop there. Because I think that leads into probably collective memory as well. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Actually, Lisa, while you were speaking, I was reminded of, there's a famous saying in, uh, of, of Gibbon, who's the great British historian of the fall of the Roman Empire, who wrote of the role of religion in the Roman Empire, and he wrote that, you know, all the people thought all religions were equally true, and the philosophers thought they were equally false, and the politicians thought they were all equally useful. 
And this, you know, I think if we paraphrase that, Charles thinks all memories are equally false, and Lisa, they're all equally true, and I think they're all equally useful. Um, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a practicing historian, and I use people's memories and memoirs. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't spend a lot of time um, unpacking them or studying them or studying the process of memory as my two colleagues do. Uh, but I have used oral history and I have used interviews in trying to write uh, books about the history of the 20th century. In other words, interviewing people who remember some of the events that I'm writing about. Um, I am aware and have been made aware by critics and many others that, that oral history is fallible and that not everything everybody remembers is exactly um, as they say. And so... I, from the beginning of, of trying to write, uh, you know, of working on my books, I, I thought a good deal about how to use memory and how to use um, how to use interviews for, uh, in particular, for the last two books I've written. One is a history of the Gulag, which is of the Soviet concentration camps. I was interviewing victims and also one or two people who were involved in the Gulag system, and then more recently for a book about the. Um, communist takeover of Eastern Europe after the war. So these are, these are fairly traumatic stories for many people, although not for everybody. So what, what was I looking for when I spoke to people? Um, uh, you know, I, I, on, two separate things. In, in essence, I was looking for people's emotions. You know, so not, I, I, never, I, I would never use somebody's oral history as a, as a way to establish a, a record of events. In other words... I would. I very often have. Usually, I have three or four sources for a single thing that I'm describing. I'll have an archival source. I'll have a newspaper, a newspaper article written at the time, which those are, which of course also often distorted. Um, I will, and archives also being distorted in a different way as well. Uh, I will have uh, something written by somebody who remembers it, and I will also have an interview with somebody who I spoke to and asked for an account of an event. Um, sometimes when I write about events, I will have different people from different perspectives. Um, one example of that is I, in my most recent book, I wrote about the, uh, an uprising that took place in Berlin in 1953, and I spoke to perhaps a dozen people who were there in Berlin on that day and asked them what did they remember about the day, and in a sort of Rashomon-like um, uh, narrative, I tried to put together you know, their, their perspectives on the same event. But the, but, the, but the point is that I, I use memoirs and I use people's and I use interviews as a way of cross-checking against other sources. Um, I see them as filling in gaps. You know, every, every source has its own kind of distortion. Every source tells the story in a slightly different way. You know, if you only used archives to write about the gulag... Uh, then you wouldn't understand very much about life inside the gulag. You would know it from the perspective of the people who are running it. Um, you would not know it from the perspective of the people who are in it. You wouldn't understand much about the sociology inside the camps and the hierarchies and the relationships between prisoners. You know, on the other hand, if you only use prisoners' memoirs, then you miss a, a piece of the story as well. You miss the story of how the camp is organized and why... Um, why the people in power decided to uh, create it in a certain way. So, in other words, I use them to I use a memoir to cross-check against other kinds of sources, to add pieces, missing pieces to the story. And as a, and often it is the emotional piece. It's the how did this situation affect you? 
Um, I, you know, I'm much more interested when I interview someone, I'm much more interested not in what happened and what time was it. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing an, an interview in, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a court of law. I'm not interested in the time of day. I'm not necessarily interested in the date. But how did it affect you? How did you feel about it? How do you remember it? How did it, you know, how did it affect something else that happened later in your life? And during the, this last book, every time I interview anybody, I always started with the question, where were you when the war ended? How do you remember the end of the war? And people did remember that, and they would say, oh, well, I was at home, or I was at, uh, you know, my family was in Silesia, or we were in exile, or, you know, so where, where were you? Just to start them from, um, just from the place, which they would know either from their own memory or from their parents telling them. They would have some sense of where they'd been. Um, but I didn't ask them, you know, what time was it, and you know, what was the exact moment when you learned the war was over. And I was, I was looking for an emotion and a sense of place. Um, at the same time, I've also found um, interviews and memoirs interesting for non-emotional things, um, almost. And here's where I would maybe slightly take issue, not take issue with, but emphasize a different piece of memory from Lisa. You know, not all memories are traumatic, and not all of them are attached to emotions. And so, for, you know, when, for example, when I, the most useful interviews I did when I was writing the book about the Gulag were not necessarily about the traumatic moment of arrest or people's experiences of watching someone die or, or something like that. I, I, I very often found that the most useful for me as a historian, the most useful part of the interview was that I said, where did you live? D- describe to me the barrack you lived in. What did you eat for supper? What was the food usually? Can you describe to me a meal? Um, uh, what you know? What did it look like? Um, what clothes did you wear? And this, and very often people hadn't been asked those kinds of questions before. You know, they'd been asked to recount their lives, and they would do. A, they all had a story of their lives they wanted to tell. How I was arrested, what happened, who I met in the camp, and so on. But when you started to ask them these unemotional, not very significant things, they often said, "Oh yes, nobody's asked me that before." But yeah, we lived in this barrack, and it looked like that. Um, and very, I, I, I've tried testing myself and my friends on some of these kinds of questions. You know, if somebody said to me, so when you were in school, what kind of food did they serve at school meals? And actually, I can remember, and that, you know, I don't have any particularly strong feelings about it. I didn't hate my school food, um, unlike one of my children who hates his school food. But I, <laughs> but I, but I, I, I can describe it because it's something that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a piece of the past that doesn't have any particular trauma or anything important attached to it, but I do remember it. And sometimes those kinds of details I've, I've found are very useful um, uh, as a historian as well. Um, I've also found that the process of interviewing people, in other words, asking people to recall their memories or tell me what an event was like, is useful to me as a historian, even if it's something I can't necessarily write about in the end. So again, here's an example. In my last book, I interviewed an East German writer named Elfriede Brüning, who had been a, she was, she was quite elderly. She was in her <coughs> late 80s, but spoke very well and, was, and, and still remembered a good deal. And she'd written memoirs, which I'd had a look at before speaking to her. But I, I nevertheless spent, um, spent a couple of hours with her, and I asked her you know, a series of questions, some of which, many of which were quite mundane, as, as, as many of my questions are, because I find them useful. But one or two of which clearly provoked something uh, you know, some feeling in her. And one of the questions was, um, in the period, because one of the things that happens in immediate post-war East Germany is that there are massive random arrests 
and many people go to prison, sometimes for no particular, sometimes because they're Nazis or people, the, the, the Soviet army, the Red Army, thought they were Nazis, and sometimes really for no reason at all. And there were, at that time, concentration camps um, created for these people. In fact, many of the camps were put in the place where, of former Nazi camps. So Sachsenhausen and Buchenwald became communist camps after the war. And Elfrida Bruning, I should say, was a, had herself been a communist at this time and had been very involved in the communist regime all the way through and had remained a communist until the 1980s. And I asked her in the course of this interview, did you know about these arrests and did you know about these camps? Because, you know, do you think you knew it? Because, of course, you know now, but did you know at the time? And she said, no, absolutely, I had no idea at the time. We, there was no way we could have known that. Um, it, 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 you know, it was absolutely cut off from me. And so I said, all right, that's, that's, that's how she remembers it. Um, we, I, did, I conducted the interview. I said, thank you very much. And I gave her a copy of my previous book, uh, which was this book about the gulag. And I gave her the book. Uh, she read the book, or she read part of it. And a couple of days later, she called me back. And she said, I want to tell you one more thing. I, after, having now read your gulag book, I would like to continue the conversation. There are a few things I wanted to tell you about that I didn't tell you about before. And so my translator and I went back to see her, and she said, well, I realized after I read the Gulag book that you, I mean, it wasn't so much you're a serious person, but that you're interested in the real story. You know, that this isn't, you're not, you know, she had been worried about me because I'm a journalist, and maybe she didn't know how I was going to use the material, but she saw in this other book that I used it in in, in a way, she approved, and she said, okay, so now I'm going to tell you, I do remember the arrest. In fact, my husband was arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was arrested, and he was, he was on his way to one of these camps, and I think thanks to her influence in the Communist Party at that time in East Germany and her ability to make a, she made some kind of deal with the Soviet police commandant in her, in her area, she got him out of prison. Um, not long after that, her husband decided that he didn't want to stay in East Germany, and he actually left, and they were divorced. Um, and presumably, I, I have to guess that this experience of having been arrested was part of the reason why he left and part of the reason why she was divorced. Um, but she retold that piece of the story, and, 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 and the first time, during the first interview, I realized it wasn't that she'd forgotten it. It's that she didn't feel comfortable saying it to me, or she didn't she didn't feel like it was necessary to say to me. And then later on, she, she did feel. She felt like maybe she should add this as, as, in order to make her story more true. Um, I didn't, in the end, have a way to use this interview in my book, um, you know, because I'm writing a history book. I'm not writing a book about what it's like to interview Elfrida Bruning. Um, but I did find it important to my understanding of that period. You know, I, I understood something about the... Um, the emotional nature of that period. I understood something about how difficult it was for an East German communist to watch uh, the Red Army making random arrests in East Germany at that period and how traumatic it must have been for her. So something of the trauma of the, the, the Russian occupation of Eastern Germany was, was transmitted to me by the interview, even though, as I say, it wasn't, quite, it wasn't exactly something I could use. And therefore, So I often found interviews useful even when... It wasn't necessarily exactly, you know, straight history that was being transmitted to me. It was something of the emotion and attitudes of the time. Um, another, another story like this, I interviewed a Polish writer called Tadej Konwicki, um, who 
in, in later years became famous as a dissident writer and a, a you know, very brilliant Warsaw intellectual. Also, in this immediate post-war period, he had been a, a communist, and he'd been for briefly a kind of Stalinist writer. He wrote a really terrible novel about life in a factory, and the worker heroes overcome some terrible difficulty and triumph, and, and so on. It was a very bad book, which he's you know now would confess that he's embarrassed of. But but he. He told me the story of his life, and, and again, I, kn- I knew he'd told it before, but what, what was useful to me about his telling of it was the, the disappointment he was able to convey to me. So he said, look, I was a, before the war, I had been a, um, I had been a Boy Scout, I had been a Patriot, I was brought up in an atmosphere, it's a very pro-Polish, very patriotic uh, family and household, um, during the war, he'd been a partisan. He fought in the woods first against the Nazis. Um, when the Red Army came through his part of Poland, he was from eastern Poland, he then fought against briefly against the Red Army. Um, and he then, at a certain point, emerged from the woods um, with, he, you know, he realized that at a certain point the Polish partisans gave up. They stopped fighting the Red Army. And, he, and they all decided to go in and turn themselves in. And you could, there was an amnesty for, for, for former... Um, former resistance fighters. He came in, he turned in his weapons, and he said to me, you know, look, in that, at that moment I realized I had nothing. I had no family. I had no possessions. I owned only the backpack I was carrying on my back. I didn't even have decent documents. Um, I was 18. I'd had no education for the previous three years, and I had nothing at all, and I was incredibly angry. Um, and his, ang- you know, his anger against you know, everything he'd been taught turned out to be wrong. You know, he'd been taught... Um, you know, to be a patriot, everything would be great. Poland was a wonderful society. And look, here is what happened. He fought for Poland. He got nothing. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was a catastrophe. And as he described his story, um, you know, I don't know which elements of it exactly were. You know, I, he wasn't giving me names and dates or, or precise reconstructions. But again, the experience of his life, this experience of disappointment, um, which led him to be, you know, to led him into Stalinism, was something he was able to convey to me, and I found that um, useful, and that was something I was able to use um, in, 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 in my book. Um, so in other words, I, I've, I've found it useful to use both kind of unemotional, unimportant memories that help me reconstruct a time, and I found it useful to use the emotions that people can convey to me by speaking to me about a period um, when trying to write the history of it. Um, but no, I, I try as much as possible not to re- rely on people for names, dates, precisely what happened and in what order. And for, for that, I, I, I try to use other sources and to, to correct that bias. So, stop there. Well, thank you very much. Uh, what we're going to do now is perhaps uh, start a conversation here. And I think uh, one of the uh, dimensions I would like you to explore while you react to each other's uh, intervention is uh, the problem of storytelling. I think uh, what Charles has mentioned in his uh, talk is fundamentally the reconstructed nature of our memories. Psychologists have searched for accuracy in cognition. How can we retrieve the past in its purity, as it were? In a way, psychological science has struggled with this problem. How can the mind recover, retrieve what once was? 
And what the science shows is that basically we cannot. We've got to come to terms with the fact that reconstructing is always present when we tell stories about our histories. And uh, in a way, Lisa mentioned that by bringing into the discussion the dynamics of remembering and forgetting, and especially the difficulties of a past that will not pass. How is it that pasts that do not pass remain with us through the stories we tell, even if they cannot be clearly articulated through our memories? So how does issues then translate into a historical narrative, I think, was Anne's problem. How can we find a balance between the very frail, faulty line that makes human memories and our need for accuracy in relation to the historical, historical record, for instance. Accuracy in the historical record is not only necessary for us to understand who we are, but I think it's also a key ethical dimension of our lives to remember and to remember correctly so that we honor stories of pain, suffering, but also stories of emancipation. So perhaps you could comment how we can reconcile this frailty of our memories, the difficulties we have to remember, and yet the need we have to remember and to tell the story, however painful it is. Could I, could I begin by saying, I mentioned that memory is a machine with many moving parts, but it's not a write-off. It's a machine that does work. It works pretty well, and we get our pasts pretty right on the whole. We don't, we don't get our pasts whole, you know, wrong wholesale. Except for pretty the guy much flying, flying, yeah. Mm-hmm. Except for your friend who flew. Oh, yeah, okay. So, so, nice. so and, and there's some interesting work, actually, which, which relates to your historical periods. Some, some work done in Denmark asking people who are now quite elderly about their, inv- their memories of the invasion and the liberation. 1940 and 45, I think, respectively. So they're asking some quite elderly people about memories for events that happened a long, long time ago, but that would qualify as what we call flashbulb memories. So we all have vivid memories of, of big events that happen in the world. So, for example, if I asked you when Princess Diana was killed and you, you found out the news, who were you with, where were you, you'll have a pretty good pretty good idea. 9-11 is another example. Those memories turn out to be quite fallible, but in the case of the Danish participants, these early Danish participants, they, they were pretty accurate about those events. They were asked, you know, certain, certain contextual details. I was very interested the way that you, you focus your participants on those ordinary details. How did things look? How did things seem? And when I was interviewing my grandmother, who, who was 93 at the time, and for, for my book, I was also keen to ask her about those ordinary, everyday details. You know, you talk about your dad going off to work at this Bible stall on Brick Lane. What was he wearing? You know, mm. And she, she would say exactly the same thing. Well, you know, nobody's ever asked me that before, but I think he was wearing a kind of hat and, and so on. So all I would start by saying is that we don't get the past wrong wholesale. We have a pretty good general understanding of our pasts, but we make lots of little errors, I suppose, which can turn out to be quite big errors. I think I'd, I'd 
because I was trying to set a different kind of context into the discussion, I may have exaggerated this fallibility of memory going on from what you said. But it is quite clear that it's quite remarkable how good our memories can be. I think one of the things that's happened in the last 20 years or so that's made us more aware of the fallibility, if you like, of human memory is simply that we have computers on hand. And because computers can do the kind of remembering that it's very hard for humans to do, we sort of downloaded (laughs) one part of our reliability into the computer. So I no longer can have a conversation over dinner and somebody will say, well, can you remember when, you know, X was born? And I'll say no. (laughs) And I have to go and and Google it and check. Uh, But can you remember how you felt when X was born? Well, no, exactly. You might remember that. uh, Absolutely. So what I was going to say is that I think we have very good memories, but not compared necessarily to computers. Mm -hmm. And I think that may be why in the discourse of of remembering, this extra dimension has come into the neuroscientist's work on fallibility. It's not just that Freud has come back, it's the computers have come in to to give us a kind of comparative measurement. But I was going to say, um, you know, your oral history, in a sense, or your interviewing techniques, I I think are absolutely wonderful. And what when I was writing my family memoir, which is not the kind of thing you do twice, so I was in a very strange situation. Um, and I, too, have in my time been, been an historian. And, and I thought, here I am, I'm, I'm doing precisely the opposite of what I would normally do because I'm trying to find the documents and the, the kind of recorded history that will fit as a particular set of events that have been remembered and filtered through parental memory. And so I was going the other way around. And that's where things became very strange, particularly in the telling of the story, because some of the things that were lacking were gone for good. In other words, you'd never find those documents. My parents were not famous people. There's no you know, recorded history in papers about them and so on. Um, and, and, and so you were, doing, you were doing quite the opposite. I was trying to find history to go along with... with uh, Memory. Right. See, I, I had my, the outline of the history, and what I was looking for was, two, as I say, two things. Either how people felt about the event, which I, I felt was something they could remember over time, mm. or how it looked like and how, what they had for breakfast, yes. usually, in that period of time. Yeah. So, so, for that, example, yeah. my mother, because she was getting Alzheimer's, would never remember the date of anything. I mean, right. you know, the war was a set of scenes episodic, which is the way we live our lives usually, but she'd forgotten a lot of it. So I had to reconstruct this from what was happening, um, you know, on the ground to everybody else too. And it's it's a strange way to proceed, really. I I have a question about something you said. You said that, um, I think it was either you or you, actually you may have both said it in a different way. I can't remember. Um, that, that, that we, we reconstruct our past as a, in order to serve something that we want to have now, be true now. Because I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I think you can ask people, how did you feel at the time, and how do you feel about it now? And what do you think you were doing then, and how do you feel now? You can say, here's an event, and you've, I know you've felt differently about it over the last 20, 30 years. Can you yeah. give me some sense of that, you know, looking back on it? And, of course, it's, you know, it's shaded, but I think people can distinguish the difference between how I think about it now and how I thought about it then. 
It's more about biases. I mean, if you ask me, for example, how I felt when Labour was elected in 1997, right. I would give you a very... I know I would give you a biased account of how that was, you know, because, that, because so much has happened since that has changed And you can't view. think yourself back into how you felt in 1997. I can, I can to a certain extent, and I can remember it to some extent. But, so to give to you an example... Extent, to, give, to give you an empirical <laughs> example, that experiment with... Obama shaking hands with Ahmadinejad. Mm. The people who are most likely to falsely remember that um, event were the Conservatives, were people who claimed to have a Conservative affiliation. Mm. Liberals were much less likely to claim a false memory for that event. And it flipped, it went the other way around. Isn't that experiment showing something else? Isn't it showing... Um, how, mis- how misled we are by photographs. I mean, is, is that the same thing as not being able to remember or falsely remembering? It's, it's, I, I, w- I wasn't sure about that. Exp- I, mean, I remember yeah. reading about it at the time. Yeah, I mean, there, there are loads of other experiments mm-hmm. where you can, where you can imp- basically implant false memories mm-hmm. in a subset of the population. Not everybody is susceptible to this, but a, mm-hmm. a decent minority... Mm-hmm. of people are very susceptible to having false memories implanted. Mm-hmm. But if that were the case, if it were just about suggestibility through photographs, then why would you get this political well, distinction? Well, it seems not surprising to me at all. That, you know, that, you know, that, no, that you would be, if you had a particular political bias, you would, you would remember it in one way or the other. But if you said to the person, but it's for, without it's showing them the photograph, has Obama ever shaken hands with Ahmadinejad, do you remember it? Maybe wouldn't you get a different answer? If they didn't see it, because photographs are meant to be a technology that is, that of is being biased by their. Aren't they being biased by the, the assumed truth of a photograph? Why are they, yes, they are, definitely. Yes, yeah. the photograph is a very strong image. But if you didn't give them a photograph and you say, Have you ever seen Obama shake hands with Ahmadinejad? Would they say yes? The it's, less, it's less easy. To, a photograph is a very, very powerful way of doing it. But, but you can do it with other be, media as well. I think it, oh, exactly. it would be yeah. misleading to think that only a photograph can generate a false memory. No, I don't think only a photograph. It just seems, you know, if I was shown a photograph of something that surprised me, I might think it was true. If you didn't tell me it was fake, I might assume yeah. it was I, true. That's, that's a reasonable yeah. um, point, and it's, and it's a criticism that's been made of these sorts of studies, but mm-hmm. there are other ways of getting at the same thing. So simply, for, exam- for example, I don't think this has ever been done, but if you ask people to imagine a scene where Obama is shaking hands with Ahmadinejad, those who had imagined the scene would be more likely subsequently to remember it. This is a phenomenon known as imagination inflation. So simply imagining something happening makes it more likely that you will subsequently have a false memory for it happening. So my friend who flew down the stairs may well have imagined flying down the stairs. Now, 40 years later, he remembers flying down the stairs. I think I'm I'm going to be a kind of cultural historian about this for a moment. I mean, I do think there is a a real problem with a lot of these experiments because, in a sense, they're setting out to prove exactly what the other experiments, you know, 10 or 15 years before, set out to to disprove. Or they're trying, you know, they're going back on what was proved before. So if you look at a history of experiments of memory over the 20th century, they're always, in a sense, you know, partly negating each other. And you go through a period where people are very keen to believe in false memories, in other words, memories that have either been implanted or Mm. suggested, Um, and at other time when they're very keen to believe in the accuracy of memory. Um, Not everybody, but but there's a a kind of trend. And and I find that very interesting. I mean, I, I kind of like this shit because I don't believe that science, certainly psychology, 
is forever, you know, good and true. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it just can't be because we're plastic too. We change. We're people. We live in time. We live with different technologies. So, so we will shift. So, so I worry about these experiments too, particularly because they're using technologies that are known for one thing in a different way. So if you were going to give somebody a novel and put in Ahmadinejad and, and Obama, they immediately say, well, that's not true. He's made it up because it's in the context of fiction. <laughs> and if the context is documentary, i.e. a photograph, they may be more likely to think it's true. And the people who are most suggestible are exactly the people who were probably most suggestible to the mind doctors at the turn of the 19th century. In other words, they're not going to be suspicious skeptics like Anne, who, who, who will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, or me. I mean, I would think, no, no way. You know, what are you showing me here? Um, but there'll be, you know, people who, who aren't, sort of, let's say, on top of the news, or, or you know, they're people who may have deeply held views uh, but they're not suspicious of people conducting experiments <laughs> so so you know I, I just build in that that uh, slight um, what's the word I don't know the hermeneutics of suspicion is the big word for mm. it into this I, I agree there are big individual differences and as I say some people are more, much more susceptible than others to these sorts of um, Implanting of memories. I don't think it's just about the technology. You can do the same thing by changing the language. Show somebody a video of a real thing happening and then change the language in which you ask, you ask a leading question about the event and then they change what they report about the event. So language does it, images do it, sound will do it, all sorts of things will do it. You know, it makes perfect sense if you understand memory as a reconstructive process that it's basically sharing the same mechanisms as imagination. Mm-hmm. And, and before, before we open to the floor, because I'm keen to, that we can have questions from you to our uh, guests, perhaps you could react on one final point, which I think is interesting and came out of the presentations. Uh, if we observe the craft of the historian, which is something and gave us a good insight uh, into, in relation, say, to psychological science or cultural history, could we perhaps conceive of memory as something that comes out of the individual mind and becomes a collective effort of different branches of knowledge and also of some social and cultural frameworks. I was very struck by your description, for instance, uh, of asking people, well, tell me what did you eat? Tell me what did you dress? Tell me what did you do? As if food, uh, everyday routines, whatever they had to do with their lives in that specific situation could provide an inroad to remembrance, to going back to something that is difficult to talk about. So uh, could memories also be outside the individual mind in the monuments we build, in the habits we develop, in the routines we construct, in the social and cultural frameworks of spaces, languages, things that are outside the mind, as it were. Perhaps this is also mind. Mm. Well, one of the things I was keen to do in the book was look at the social context of memory and the way that we're constantly shaping each other's memories. So, for example, there's plenty of research showing that siblings borrow memories from each other. 
siblings will, will claim memories that actually belong to the other sibling and claim them as their own. Couples, when they get to the part, part of the you know, rules of forming, a, you know, part of the conditions under which you form a successful relationship is that you come to a shared negotiation of your past. And when people, get, when people split up, get divorced, uh, suddenly differences in memory start to emerge. Siblings tend to not sh- sh- face that same pressure to agree that couples do, and tend, so they, they can often be arguing about their childhoods long, long into, into middle age and beyond. But I, well, I, I didn't feel I had the skills, really, to, to go further with that in my book, and I'm very interested to ask you, Anne, about how, you know, do you think memories can come to be shared politically and, and have a political power? So I, I, I mentioned the, the civil rights movement in the US where I think some of, the, some of the key events, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, for example, almost took on... You know, and an, an identity that went beyond individual people, so that people were remembering those events who weren't even born. And I think you can say the same thing about politically charged events. You can, you know, they they say more people remember Woodstock than could possibly have been there. <laughs> but you could say the same thing probably about Grosvenor Square, probably about the poll tax riots, probably about the student loan riots. That we 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 can quite easily, because of the political force of events, we can quite easily come to share a memory that we weren't actually at. Yes, I, I don't pretend to remember the poll tax riots, but mm-hmm. um, well, you just touched on a very big subject, um, and in fact, I spent an, two hours um, on Tuesday teaching a seminar on this exact subject, which is uh, to do with collective memory and the role of the past in 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 present politics. Um, and in my part of the world, the part of the world I write about in Eastern Europe, in this former, whatever we call it now, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, the ex-Soviet Union, this is extremely important. Um, to, you know, so much so that there is a there is a, uh, a Serb in my class who, at one point, raised his hand and said, "Well, you know, actually, in Yugoslavia, we went to war over some of these arguments about <laughs> history and memory. So it's it's not funny. I mean, it's a these are live issues that play how how you remember the history of the war and how." The person in the country next door remembers the history of the war. Um, is it can be a live political issue that that matters very much in contemporary politics, and I can give you many, many examples of it. I won't do it now because I that would we'd have to do it for another two hours. Um, but the, but the, the mechanisms by which collective memory are created are are real, are multiple. I mean, it's it, it, of course it comes out of people's brains, but it's also through the media, it's through film, it's through literature, it's through the newspapers, it's through um, political speeches. Um, uh, you know, it, you know the, the conclusion I've come to is really every political leader in every country uses memory to some extent and uses history to some extent in its politics, um, but you can do it in a better or worse way. Um, you can try to present the nation with a single interpretation of history that's the only one that's legal, and we've had societies that have tried to do that. And then there are societies that allow various interpretations of history to exist simultaneously and lets people argue about them. And that's often a, that's often a healthier society because then there's pe- pe- people have options of one kind or another. Um, there are also many societies that have the experience of rediscovering history. It's interesting you mentioned the civil rights movement because I've often returned to that um, in thinking about how uh, the former Soviet Union now remembers the gulag and how it remembers the trauma of Stalinism. And the answer is often that it doesn't remember. They're, it's very different from country to country now. 
but there has been an attempt to sort of push it into the past and not talk about it. Um, as there was in Nazi Germany for 20 years after the war until there was a traumatic student revolution in 1968, which was largely about this issue. Let's talk about the past. Where were you during the war to your parents? And so which made, you know, there was a forced discussion of it. And the civil rights movement, and very often, sorry, I should say these kinds of memories of national trauma, undiscussed national trauma, are accompanied by civil rights movements or human rights movements or attempts to redress the wrongs of the past. And the civil rights movement was absolutely that. It was a kind of recovered memory, a public discussion, and it brought with it a... It, but it started with history. It started as a reassessment of American history. And then that brought a, a, a change. But a similar process in Germany. Maybe someday we'll see it in Russia, too. I think I'm going to uh, open for questions. And so any... There is one at the back, and then here. I think I saw. I think it's going to be whoever gets the microphone first. Yeah. Hi, I was wondering if you could just. Uh, there's two questions to comment. It was one is regarding its family, its kind of memories, personal memories, but in family household memories, how women during before Renaissance and then afterwards would be the fabricators of the objects that would inform memory like samplers in the United Kingdom and also photo albums and things that now currently are getting shifted to a context of data, byte, which no longer is in personal, like household, there's very little objects that inform memory at this stage in that sense. And the other one would be regarding digital archives and this collective memory. There's two examples in the United States of a new sort of digital uh, participatory archive, which is the Katrina Archive and the 9-11 Archive, and they're both sponsored by uh, Smithsonian Institute and um, the Library of Congress. Uh, but they seem to be a bit of a kind of, there is no edition, and it seems to be just a sort of sharing experience, and if you could comment on both these questions. Let, let's take another question before you react. So we'll take two at a the time. There was here, person in yellow. Yeah. Uh, hi. I wanted to ask about sensory memory, um, particularly in relation to sounds and music. Sound memory. The, the fact is um, a song or a piece of music may remain the same unless a different person sings it, but um, it often triggers very strong recollections of things. But we change as we grow. So a song that you initially came across, say, five years ago, and today when you listen to it, you may remember certain things, where you were, who you were, or that. But how you respond to the lyrics, or particularly music, if we take lyrics out, could be quite different. I wonder if you can comment on this aspect in terms of its potency and fallacy. Thank you. Shall I start with the sensory memory one? Something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, I'm thinking about Proust and his Madeleine, uh, and the idea that in Proust's great novel, Marcel, the narrator, um, is trying to remember his past life, his, his childhood, um, and failing, not getting anywhere with reconstructing the past. And then in that famous scene, he takes a taste of a Madeleine, a crumb of a Madeleine soaked in lime-scented tea, and 
the, the kind of tabloid story is that he is suddenly transported back into Combray. There's this whoosh, and he's suddenly back there in, in the house of his childhood. Actually, if you read Proust, the process is much more painful. Uh, it's much more extended. He goes on for several pages trying to recapture whatever the, it is that the Madeleine is, is triggering. And what the Madeleine is doing initially is trigger, triggering an emotion. He talks about being overwhelmed by a feeling which he can't place. He can't understand why he's feeling this particular way. Ultimately, through a lot of cognitive effort, he connects it to the real explicit memory or the reconstruction of that past time. But because partly because people get this... Uh, this event in Proust wrong and they read the tabloid version it's been assumed that smell and taste have a particularly powerful uh, line into memory and we're starting to doubt that now I mean it certainly smells and tastes can be very very powerful in this Proustian way and smells as many of you will have experienced can, can really bring, that, bring the past back in very strong ways but it seems that there's, some, there's a lot of disagreement about whether there's anything special about these senses so music, for example, is a very good uh, example of another medium, another sensory medium, which can have very similar effects. You know, there are bits of music that as soon as I hear them, I have a Proustian experience. Um, but so do visual cues. You know, just seeing something, seeing an old advert from the 1970s, for me, can, can create that same kind of initially strong feeling, which can then connect, or not, to an explicit memory. Um, if I could just add to that, I mean, you must never forget that when you're reading Proust, it is a fiction as well. And, and apparently, I've just learned um, that the Madeleine, this, this great, wonderful sort of um, shell-shaped biscuit, was 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 meant to be a biscuit in the first version, <laughs> one of these dry rusks, <laughs> which just at all have the same kind of immediate um, mnemonic. Uh, uh, impetus to it. Um, about music, I do think uh, uh, the little that I know about this, I mean, a lot of work has been done with um, Alzheimer patients and dementia patients and music. And I think probably one of the strongest aspects of these, um, the use of music to, um, if you like, help to stabilize, not, not to recapture it in any dramatic sense, but to stabilize people's memories, has also got to do with bodily rhythms. And um, I, I just think that's very interesting. I mean, we, you know, we all know that if we remember childhood jingles or nursery rhymes, it, it comes with, with a kind of um, meaningful package to it, whether we can decipher the meanings of it or not. And I think the reason for part of this is, is that a lot of this is pre-linguistic. In other words, it it's, comes from that moment of childhood amnesia, which, which um, the mem current memory scientists are now going back to older ones like Freud and say, you know, it does exist. There is childhood amnesia. But in that period of childhood amnesia, what do we mean? It's, it's an area of life that is difficult to recapture in language because it was pre-verbal. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the difference between language and, and this kind of sensual being that we were before we had it is, is, is something we don't know very much about because we can't know very much about it because we're asked to respond to it usually in terms of, of, of language. Am I wrong to say this? No, I, I think you're right. The one, one thing that's interesting about smell is it shifts what's known as the reminiscence bump back. 
So if I ask Lisa, for example, she'll be my guinea pig. If I asked her just to generate memories of her life, just, just come up with memories, write them down on cards, and, and add an age at which the event happened to you, you would find that her memories clustered around late uh, adolescence, early adulthood. It's a very, very common finding. It would happen to everybody in the room of a certain age. You know, their memories would cluster around early adulthood. When you cue memory by smell, that reminiscence bump is pushed back, not as early as that pre-linguistic phase. So that's where I would um, disagree. But it, it, it does get pushed back into kind of middle childhood, around about age eight. So in that sense, it may be that smells access earlier memories. It's, it's interesting what you said about um, Alzheimer's, because I did uh, some work in the book on somebody with amnesia and people with amnesia and also people with Alzheimer's are using other technologies such as this thing called SenseCam which is a little camera that you, uh, you hang around your neck and it just takes images of, of, of your life of things that are going on around you and then people go and they look back at these images and they find they have these same kind of Proustian experiences where just the tiny little visual details. Of course, it's all visual. It's a camera. There's no sound. There's no other sensory information. A tiny little detail, like the colour of a waiter's shirt in a restaurant, will suddenly trigger a memory in somebody who's meant not to be able to form new memories. And, and I described this process with one particular extraordinary uh, woman um, who has a very dense amnesia but was using SenseCam to access memories that she wouldn't otherwise have been able to access. This question here, and then we'll take a question here, there, and there. I'm just um, curious about how memory may change in the social media age. I think we've taken 90% of all the world's photographs were taken in the last year. And uh, I certainly know with my children that virtually every day they're posting up photographs of themselves doing things on Facebook with uh, status updates on what they're doing. How will that, do you think, affect memory in 20 or 30 years' time? Because we are constantly taking snapshots of ourselves, moments in time, we're all tweeting now. Um, how does that affect the way that we will recall things in the future? Let's take a, another question. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about the different narrative forms uh, that uh, we're bombarded with. That um, I was thinking how this narrative and memory, if there's any effect uh, that we have by the fact that so much of our experience is, of, is not actually of real events, but of, say, fictional events or mythical events. Um, I sometimes find that when my wife is telling anecdotes around the meal table, that the stories uh, fit into a, a particular genre in which you know, I appear as a sort of stock character that I don't <laughs> necessarily recognize in the story. Uh, and I just wonder if, um, if, if when we try and recall events, even serious and traumatic events, perhaps like a car accident, I'm wondering if is that informed by our experience of, say, watching a media event, it could have been a real car accident, or whether a family dispute would be told in the terms of a soap opera, um, and that we would actually feel as if we were kind of remembering things because our way of thinking about it has been so informed by 
um, cliched narrative um, stereotypes? I think that that's a wonderful question, and the answer is yes. <laughs> um, I mean, this is this is quite true. I mean, for all of us who write, we know that whenever we're writing, in a sense, the form plays a part in whatever it is that we're you know, trying to construct, and 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 you know, this obviously happens in an anecdotal way. Um, and I, I don't want to harp on about this book because I actually can't remember what's in it anymore since it's my life, it's gone, I've written it. Um, but but I, I do think at one point I, I was very aware that my parents in each other's narratives had stock parts. Um, and, you know, as a child that, that you don't quite understand this, but, but it's clear. And it's, it's also, you know, clear to me that when I'm in a jokey mood, that's going, you know, I'm the recounting one one bit of my life is going to be very different than when I'm in a somber mood. So, um, yes. <laughs> I, I would and, say to that sorry. last last question... Oh, sorry, you wanted to say... Yes, I just, 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 you know, can we predict what's going to happen in the future? I, I think what's going to happen in the future is that the electricity is going to go out and we won't be able to see any of those photographs <laughs> that we do. <laughs> and, 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 and all that stockpile digital memory will probably disappear. At least that's my panicky fear. <laughs> Um, I would say the, the the point about people speaking and in, inventing stock characters, this is something I've encountered as a journalist. Um, you have to be very careful when you interview people. For example, when you're doing what we call vox pop before an election, and you walk around and you interview people and you say, are you going to vote for George Bush or John Kerry? And you realize pretty quickly that very often people respond in the way they've seen people respond on TV. And they use, you know, they'll stand up a little straighter as if they're being interviewed on TV, and they'll say things that you've heard, you know, they'll, they'll use a cliche, I'm voting for George Bush because I don't believe in taxes or something, you know, I've, or I'm voting for John Kerry because, you know, and, and they, they'll use kind of stock phrases that you know they've heard somewhere else. Um, so it's very hard to, you, you know, it's not a very, I mean, this is maybe the least interesting form of journalism, but it's... It's very hard to get people to respond in an intro, you know, in, in, in a creative way in a political context because they're reacting to stuff they've heard somewhere else. Um, social media, I, I almost everyone I know, or really everyone, feels they're losing their memory and they remember things less than they did before, and that's because of Google, you know, because they know they can Google something, so they don't try to remember it, or they they are now distracted by so many different kinds of media that they can't remember what they're doing anymore. Whether that's been proved by anybody or whether it's, it's maybe you know, I don't know. But my, my feeling is that the bombardment of information and of photographs and um, uh, you know, new forms of distraction are incredibly bad for the human brain's memory. But, but I, I, I'm not a scientist. It's just my experience. Well, to pick up on the Google effect, there was a study which caused a big splash a couple of years ago which seemed to show that the student participants who took part um, were less likely to trust their own memory on something and more likely to want to go to Google to find out information. There have since been some methodological queries raised about this study, so I don't know how much to, um, to pay attention to it. I do think technology will change the way we interact with our memories, but I think it has always, been, it has always done so. I mean, when photography arrived it would have changed the way we remember things. When printing, when movable type printing was developed, it changed the way people didn't have to go around carrying books around in their heads any longer. They 
they could have copies uh, at home. And, you know, go back as far as the, the, you know, the the origins of writing. All these things will have changed our memories. So we we are always interacting with technology. Technology is always changing. Our relationship with it it will always change. It will continue to change our memories. I don't think it's... I've got a teenage daughter who's taking photos the whole time and sticking them up on Instagram. Um... I'm not worried about it. I think things are just changing. You know, I think she will find a different way of, of interacting with her memories. As far as the genre issue is concerned, I think I'd love to do a study where you took some people who watch sci-fi movies and some people who watch serious grown-up dramas and compared the kinds of memories that, they, that came out. It, just, it hasn't been done as far as I know, but I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that, that people's memories were shaped uh, in that way. But in a way, it's... It's understandable. It, it, you know, it's, it's predictable that people's memory accounts will change over time. And when I was researching the book, particularly on this topic of flashbulb memories, I came across a really early psychological study, one of the first empirical psychological studies, which was interviewing people of different ages. So I think it was published around the turn of the century, interviewing people of different ages about their flashbulb memories. And one of the beautiful little bits of testimony in that study was of somebody hearing the news of Lincoln's assassination. And it's this really quite poignant account of how this person had been travelling to the big city to buy the gear for his son's graduation or something, and he, he, drove, he rode into a town, you know, and um, people had long faces and so on. But, of course, this testimony was, is written like something out of Nathaniel Hawthorne. You know, it's, it's, it has its own genre. It has a genre of a 19th-century novel, because that's when it's from. So in that sense, yeah, our storytelling practices are bound to shape the way we tell memories. Okay. Well, I'm afraid I have uh, the organisers at the back, frankly, telling me that our time is up. Before we finish, let me just remind you, for those of you, remind you, remember, uh, for those of you who are interested in relations between psychology, fiction and narrative, we have a wonderful event tomorrow uh, at the festival that is called A Tale of Two James, an exploration of the works of William James and Henry James, the two brothers. So please do come if you are interested in this. And can I say thank you very much for all of you who came and thank you for our speakers who, with whom uh, we could continue talking for hours. I think we have to ask for two, three more hours to continue this conversation. There are books outside to buy, and I think Charles uh, will be happy to sign yeah, some of them, and Lisa and Anne are going to be briefly around, so if you want to get any books, just grab them, and they will be happy to, happy to sign them for you. Thank you again, and uh, I hope to see you around the festival in the next two or three days. Thank you for coming.